0: All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Ken Kopenstein, now of the nation. Hey, Ken, how you doing?
1: Hey, just wanna let you know, no hard feelings there.
0: Uh, (laughs) No, obviously not. All right, congrats on the new job, actually. Um, So, uh, Ken, you wrote a story about uh, Bloomberg campaign NDA. So first, tell us what
1: that is. So the Bloomberg campaign um, has its uh, staffers sign a non-disclosure agreement. That's a confidentiality agreement. Um, which makes it so that it, uh, you know, is a, a civil violation for them to disclose things that are going on in the campaign. And for some things, that makes sense. So, for example, if you're financing um, internal polling, you don't want that to get out. So I understand that. But if you look at the language of the um, contract that was leaked to me, um, what it shows is that they can't discuss hardly anything about the campaign. And that um, is a, you know, serious threat to the public being able to know what's going on, not just during the campaign, but this um, agreement. Uh, goes on indefinitely. So that's going to make it really hard for reporters to figure out, uh, you know, in retrospect what uh, may have happened or not happened.
0: So I guess there's two different things here because NDAs are fairly normal uh, in, in the business world. I know some now say maybe they shouldn't be, but they are. So one is this is not the business world, this is a campaign. Is, is that a difference? And then secondly, uh, is there something about this NDA that's more exhaustive than a normal NDA? Yeah,
1: well, what's interesting about the NDA is I ran it by um, a government uh, watchdog group that uh, commented uh, and they're familiar with campaigns and uh, the distinction you draw between campaigns and businesses is right because uh, in the private corporate world uh, these are you know perfectly common um, however in campaigns they are less common and um, what's more about this confidentiality agreement is that it's extremely detailed very long and uh, very broadly applied so it would cover much more than um, what you would ordinarily see what i was told is that um, most confidentiality agreements in the context of campaigns um, are much shorter uh, you know uh, many are even just a few sentences long covering just the basics you know don't talk to the press don't you know go go through uh, proper channels, so on and so forth and they also have a duration where they'll expire none of that is true of this uh, of this confidentiality agreement and what's more is there's a section on it that makes it so that um, you can't report uh, it would essentially the language of it makes it difficult for if you were to report. Um, workplace abuse, so things like sexual harassment, racial discrimination, those sorts of things. Um, it does have a carve out for um, uh, disclosing those things in the context of a court, like if you're subpoenaed or you know, um, testimonies requested. But uh, the fact of the matter is that it usually doesn't get to that level. So this is going to have a chilling effect on their employees. And the context of all of this is that um, you know, Bloomberg has uh, had a bunch of NDAs um, had women sign NDAs, um, not just uh, personally uh, with respect to allegations against himself individually, but for his company as well. So that's sort of the context that all this arises in.
0: So yeah, well, that's what I was gonna get to. So one more thing about that, well, why do we think this is? Do we think that it is uh, because he comes from uh, the corporate world and so he's just applying it to a campaign? Uh, do we think it's the the 40 different cases of sexual harassment? At uh, Bloomberg, and and by the way, the company's got his name on it. Doesn't mean he did the sexual harassment. It also doesn't mean that that makes it any better. Uh, but uh, might that be the context here? Or they're paying up people a lot of money, and and Bloomberg is famously, uh, you know, tries to guard his privacy. I, I, I'm gonna say, I, I suppose if you have $57 billion, you'd do that. But I suppose you'd probably wanna do that if you didn't, if you had 57 bucks. Uh, that doesn't necessarily make it right either. But what do we think is driving this?
1: I think you're exactly right. It looks to me, and um, you know, this is what my sources are kind of hinting at too, that he's exporting a business strategy that he's used in the corporate world is trying to apply that to governance. And who does that remind you of? <laughs> that reminds me of Donald <laughs> Trump um, and the you know government watchdog group that I spoke with. About this NDA, actually said that Donald Trump used a similar um, NDA, and that was the cause of a lot of controversy in um, 2017, or I think it was 2016, for his campaign. Um, and so I think what you're seeing is an attempt to, uh, you know, move um, government, which is, you know, historically and uh, just rationally supposed to be uh, something that has more transparency than than matters of private affairs, and and, and, and adopt a sort of, um, you know, corporate. Worldview uh, world view in, in how you uh, handle these things. and and that is just that you know that might work in business, but um that is just very corrosive to uh, the kind of sunlight that that we require, I think of of our government to, you know, just know what the hell's going on.
0: yeah, that's actually a good transition to talking about the campaign in general because um, to me, the thing that struck me was both Trump and Bloomberg use legal avenues is almost a form of bullying. So now there's a lot of talk about, oh my God, do Bernie Sanders supporters on Twitter that are unverified, do they bully people, right? But the reality is when you have a ton of money, like Trump does, he says, for example, I'm gonna hide all my grades. And if anybody tries to find my high school grades even, I will sue them. And they won't be able to afford the lawsuit, so I'll bankrupt them for trying to find out what a dummy I am. Uh, and Bloomberg has, uses his money and, and legal team in a, in a similar way. Is that in a sense a way of intimidating not just people who work for them, but maybe also the press as well? You better be careful with Mike Bloomberg, otherwise, he'll come after you with his army of lawyers.
1: Oh Yeah, and uh, you know, my sources within um, the campaign who uh, I worked with, and there were several of them, this wasn't just one person, um, they all described a mood of um, anxiety and fear, frankly, um, about a um, figure that they perceive as enormously powerful and an agreement that they sign that they're worried, um, you know, you don't really know what it applies to because it's so broad. So, um, you know, aside from um, what are the literal consequences of, of, of this um, agreement that, that people in the campaign signed, there's also the psychological effect of, geez, this looks pretty scary. There's a guy with a whole pile of money that he's sitting on top of and all these complicated, you know, um, legal um, resources at his disposal. And all of that is just, I think, runs contrary to uh, what we're, is supposed to be the spirit of um, uh, government, which is you know, openness so that we can debate and question things.
0: So uh, Ken, actually, it reminds me of something else that uh, happened in Bloomberg media. I used to know someone that, that worked there, and what she said is, um, the good news was that Bloomberg would overpay you by about 10 to 20% above market, and everybody knew that. But then once you got an apartment or a house based on that, you were hooked. And everyone there was hooked. And they knew that if they went to a different job, they couldn't afford their apartment or their mortgage, etc. And then they would put in really restrictive rules. And there'd be no debating anything, right? I mean, it's not, which you know, in a normal workplace environment, you don't get to debate your manager. But she had worked in many different places and said this was, just absolutely oppressive. But if you ever complain, they'd be like, "Well, okay, we're overpaying you. So what are you going to do?" And in this case, I've heard that the staffers are getting up to a hundred and forty thousand dollars, which is unheard of in the campaign world. So does that appear to be the same strategy he used at Bloomberg Media?
1: One hundred percent, Jenk. I mean, that is uncanny what you just described. Because um, without getting into sourcing. And the individuals i work with for this particular article uh i've gotten to know a whole bunch of people on the campaign they're a leaky bunch (laughs) because a lot of them don't believe in it because they're doing it because um you know they'll source out to these um young folks that need work desperately and uh this is something that um provides them not just that but something that they can uh you know survive off of um and so that is something i'm hearing again and again and again and suggest to me that um, Bloomberg is uh, purchasing a campaign um, rather than you know, attracting people to his ideology or uh, what his worldview may be for uh, improving the country.
0: No, I, I've talked to progressive staffers who've gone to Bloomberg because they're like, what can I do? I mean, it's just too much money. And even if he loses, he's gonna pay me for the rest of the year. But what that means is they're all mercenaries. And so when you've got mercenaries, then you have to put a tougher NDA on them. Otherwise, they're gonna tell folks the- the questionable stuff you might be up to. So that's that's part of it. Now, I wanted to just broad uh, talk a little bit more broadly about the campaign because I've noticed a phenomenon, but you're following it closer, uh, that a lot of the damaging stuff about Bloomberg seems to be reported by non-traditional press. So Benjamin Dixon finds the, uh, the tape on uh, on stop and frisk, uh, you've got. Laura Bassett, who used to work at HuffPost for a long time, she's at GQ now. But there's not a lot of New York Times stories that seem to be breaking on Bloomberg, and and he was the mayor for three terms in New York. You'd think the New York Times would be all over it. Are you seeing that same disparity between national media being way softer on Bloomberg and, and the rest of the media actually exposing the stuff that he's done?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's a few factors I think at play here. One is that Bloomberg is <laughs> sort of like with the campaign. Um, the news media company is one of the few to, um, you know, offer people pretty good pay uh, in a field that, um, you know, is is very competitive and, and seems to only get worse over time. Um, so I'm speculating, but I would imagine that, um, you know, uh, people thinking about their careers and their livelihoods um, are going to be hesitant to, um, you know, cross- one of the places that is one of the very few that you can make a decent living at uh, this kind of work. That's one factor. Um, another is just that uh, Bloomberg is a huge media conglomerate. Uh, completely aside from the people that it employs, it is helping to set the agenda. Jenk, I saw a headline that described um, Bloomberg as, uh, Bloomberg and Bernie as the only two front runners at this point, point. and that was published by Bloomberg News. I can't think of a better <laughs> illustration of the problems with uh, concentration of uh, you know power in, in, in media that we have now.
0: Yeah, so that's really powerful what Ken is explaining there. Uh, it's, and I saw this when I worked at MSNBC, a third of the people in the building had already worked at Fox News, another third had friends who worked at Fox News, and another third were looking forward to working at Fox News. That's why the rest of cable news never criticized Fox News. Because their livelihood either was tied to it or could be tied to it in the future. And so if you're in New York Times or Washington Post, you're thinking, Bloomberg's my lifeboat. And one last thing, Ken, real quick, I I don't know that Bloomberg Media makes any money. He makes all his money from the terminals. So Bloomberg Media might be a giant marketing arm. And so hey, look, not only do I get to buy a whole media company that puts out my marketing to protect my $57 billion or whatever he's up to. But I also get to influence the rest of the press, hey, one day you might get that jackpot at Bloomberg Media, so you better be good to me. Uh, so I get that that's a phenomenon, I guess my question there is, do you have any idea if Bloomberg Media actually makes money on its own, or is it a loss leader for marketing purposes?
1: I don't know for certain, and so much of this stuff is sort of you know, a black box um, with finance generally. But I don't think it's unreasonable to uh, you know, pre, uh, kind of presume that um, it, the financial side of his conglomerate, because it's really two parts, as you say. One is financial, um, not, not just the terminals, but uh, instruments generally. Um, and then the other side of it is, is, is the media side. And so I, I think what we're seeing is sort of um, Trump on steroids in the sense of Trump had a prefab media identity that helped him run. And now we have someone who has a prefab media empire which is completely different and um, sort of uncharted waters that I think we find ourselves in now.
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting times, and he's much more subtle and much smarter than Trump. So, uh, that's also uh, something to look out for. All right, Ken Klippenstein from The Nation, thank you so much, we appreciate it, brother. Great to talk to you. And by the way, is that the lavender sweater, is it back?
1: It sure is, I brought it back (laughs) just for you. (laughs)
0: All right, well, good to see that too, all right, thanks, Ken. That's all right, take the, care. Yeah, that's the sweater that lit the, lit the Internet on fire. Okay, when we come back, speaking of lighting things on fire, Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief of the Intercept, he's also talking about the phenomenon of Bloomberg. The part that you might not recognize is how much that hurts other campaigns, cuz he's taken all the staffers. So what are the consequences that flow from that? And the press in general, regards to Bernie and Bloomberg. Let's talk about that when we return. All right, back on Young Turks, joining me now is Ryan Grimm, Washington bureau chief of The Intercept. Uh, Ryan, I wanna talk to you about the battle of the internet versus mainstream media in regards to this race in a second. But first, uh, you have a story out about how Bloomberg is uh, taking all the uh, the staffers. So uh, not not a lot of people are talking about this it's An interesting piece you wrote uh, for The Intercept. Uh, so everybody knows Bloomberg spending a ton of money on ads, he spent 300 million overall. Uh, but what they don't know is what you report. So talk to me about uh, how much staffers uh, he's sucked up out of the system, uh, how he's doing it, and what are the ramifications?
2: Yeah, I started hearing uh, anecdotal uh, evidence that that he was hiring so many organizers, you know, from the lowest level staff that a campaign needs up to the very top brass. Uh, so that I yeah, you know, I, I, I put out a request on Twitter. I see um, you know, if you're a if you're a candidate or if you're a progressive organization that's having having trouble hiring because of uh, the Bloomberg effect, uh, you know, shoot me a note. And I expected maybe half a dozen people to get in touch and I might have something interesting to add. Instead, I got just dozens and dozens and dozens, and, and they're still coming in of examples from all around the country because Bloomberg is spending absolutely everywhere of people who can't find, they can't find petition signatures because in Philadelphia, for instance, uh, he's paying $20 per signature. Uh, and so all of these campaigns who have to get uh, signatures uh, to get on the ballot, you know, the, the people are just uh, walking off. He's paying $6,000 a month um, to a field organizer, which is you know one of the one of the kind of entry level positions in a campaign, and kind of basically you know a, a, a canvasser and you know does some additional organizing work, eight thousand for kind of that person's boss a month, um, and on and on to these extraordinary salaries, and so you find you're, you're finding these cam- these campaigns that are just completely um, bereft of, of staff, and so uh, you know Bloomberg's uh, pitch. Was that you know he's going to rescue the party with all of his money, um, and that might come to pass if he's not the nominee, and those people are still working uh, on, on local and state and federal campaigns paid by him. But if he's the nominee and they're working for him, you know not only is he likely to lose the general election, uh, but then it's a bloodbath up and down the ballot.
0: Yeah, well, so to give you guys context, uh, progressive campaigns normally get the signatures through volunteers. Uh, but $5 is, is a tough rate to pay per signature, that's, that's too high in my opinion. Uh, he sued $20 Sick. because the guy has endless money right. for all the money that he spent.
2: It's me, It's monopoly money.
0: Yeah, it's it's meaningless cuz all the money that he spent on the campaign, he's made more than that in interest alone yeah. if he only got 5%, which he gets way more than that. So he literally cannot run out of money. So, so, but what that's done is, you know, I, I don't know if this is the technical term for it or anything like that, but I have heard progressive campaigns talking about surviving the Bloomberg assault because he comes in and tries to take all your staffers. And then you have to see if you've got a campaign left after that.
2: Yeah. And I, I've, t- I've talked to uh, some who are working for uh, Bloomberg now who might not even vote for him. They've said, like themselves, um, who support other candidates, Uh, but you know, life is tough. Uh, People have bills, and you know, somebody comes to you and says, "I will give you six thousand dollars a month, uh, or eight, or ten thousand dollars a month." Some uh, uh, a a tech person I talked to was offered twenty five thousand dollars a month um, to to work for the campaign. Uh, one, One person. Uh, turned the job down and because of the momentum of the hiring uh, machine that they have uh, still was mailed a laptop and an iphone um, even even though they didn't take the job uh, <laughs> some Christ. campaigns have called it the attack of of the body snatchers um, but he, here's what here's what's interesting about it so one of the people I talked to uh, who who is kind of a you know mid-level person who took the job for the money was like look You know, if if Bloomberg doesn't win on Super Tuesday and he keeps this going like he said he's going to, you know, he has promised that he's going to keep this operation on the field through November. He's like the amount of uh, tools that we have and the resources we have could be a game changer. He's like we could flip a dozen state legislative seats in this state just by because so many of those races are won by you know slim margins. And with the amount of money that Bloomberg has to spend, they could do all of the things that political scientists have said do actually propel turnout. But they're just too expensive and too time consuming for anybody to do other than the eighth richest person uh, in the country. So if Bloomberg you know, loses quickly but keeps his people on the field, you know, that could put um, state legislatures in play, that could put Senate races in play that might not have been in play, House races in play. Um, if Bloomberg is serious about his commitment to um, actually doing this all the way through November, or uh, you know, is he just in this you know for himself? Well, and that'll be the question will be answered if, if he does get knocked out around yeah. Super Tuesday.
0: You know, Ryan, uh, I thought of uh, another potential silver lining of the Bloomberg candidacy as we were just talking about. If he really does do that, and that's a giant if, yeah. and Republicans get wiped out in a lot of states because of the Bloomberg money. We might finally have momentum to get money out of politics.
2: <laughs> that's right, <laughs> right. That that's right. Exactly. Like the the way um, the way that we got uh, gun control legislation uh, was because the Black Panthers walked into the you know, California state legislature open carrying, and so all of a sudden they banned open carrying. Um, yeah. So that, I think I think that's right. Like the second that uh, big money turns against. Uh, Republicans, then you'll you'll have enough of them that are like, wait, wait a minute, this is crazy. This guy just bought the election, and Democrats yeah. or progressives would say, yeah, yeah, he did. So maybe you should do something about that.
0: Exactly right. I got a, a URL for you. It's called Wolf-Pack.com. There you
2: go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right now, my my worry is that it it uh, kind of incentivizes people like Charles Koch. Uh, Adelson and others who it, have been spending a paltry amount, relatively paltry amount of their massive fortunes. You know, for Adelson to kick in 150 million dollars used to be a, a headline-making move. But like you said, that doesn't dent his net worth. Um, you know, Bloomberg, no matter what he spends, is going to be richer at the end of this than he is going into it. And so. You know, th- there are resources out there possessed by the .01% that have been kept on the sidelines for whatever reason, um, and it's not just Adelson, Coke. It's it's uh, Zuckerberg. It's uh, Bezos. It's it's all of the others who, if if it works for Bloomberg, will say, well, mm, why don't I do this?
0: Yeah. No. And all of a sudden, we've got an auction. Right. We're just right. auctioning off the government to the highest bidder. Right. Uh, so. Uh, we already were in a sense, they've just made it so glaring that you can't not notice it. Um, so, But I do want to talk about the uh, media coverage of, of all of this. So on the one hand, you have television uh, that attacks Bernie Sanders 24-7 on every program. Um, and on the other hand, you have the Internet, which now fights back. And then now TV's latest thing is, uh, it, and I say TV, but it's also New York Times, Washington Post, all the, the national media. Now their latest thing is you're not allowed to fight back on the internet, and if you do, we're going to call you all sorts of names, and so you're threatening our monopoly. So that's how I see it as a progressive, uh, Ryan. What's your take of that battle between the TV and internet?
2: Yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch it play out because you know we're, we're at this spot where you know if you were to you know 20 years from now, kind of chart out the decline of uh, the you know the rise and fall of cable news and and I think people talk about mainstream media uh, but you know it's that's a disaggregated bunch like I, I think a lot of when I think of mainstream media I kind of think of cable news CNN MSNBC mostly um, and and to some to some degree New York Times and Washington Post um, but if you chart their decline and you and you chart the kind of rise of of YouTube you know what we're watching now um, and Twitter. You you might you might find that they're kind of convening at this moment when it comes to their power over the political process, which means that it's kind of a titanic struggle. You know, in a, like will uh, you know will cable news be able to take down Bernie Sanders um, before uh, Twitter and YouTube are are able to take down uh, Mike Bloomberg? And it, and it's kind of an open question, and it. And I, th- I feel like social media has a little bit of an advantage because in some ways, cable is downstream from social media. You know, Twitter is kind of uh, you know, in the heads of all of the, the hosts and the producers and the bookers. And so it is driving the programming. I think that's why you see the phenomenon that, that you're talking about, which is kind of uh, it's, it's the kind of host's attempt to repel the parasite. Um, by saying that, well, actually, all, all of this is just is rudeness and it's and it's mean tweets. Um, and I, I go back and forth over whether or not Sanders supporters are are qualitatively more rude, if you want to, you know, for lack of a better word on Twitter, or if there are just so many millions more Sanders supporters on Twitter um, that you're going to you know, just get more of more of those people. Um, I, I usually tend to land on on the side of there are just so many more Sanders supporters that you know if you had um, you know 20 million uh, rabid uh, Joe Biden supporters on Twitter then you'd get a certain portion of them um, that are that are vicious and mean and that you could screenshot and put into an ad but you don't have 20 million Biden supporters online you have like 45. Biden's Biden supporters <laughs> online it's 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 wild like you yeah. criticize Joe Biden online and you and you I used to at the beginning of the campaign I would then brace for the pushback cuz I'm so used to to 2016 campaign and then there'd be nothing.
0: Yeah.
2: Like wow, that's weird.
0: Yeah.
2: Isn't this guy running for president where where are his people?
0: He, so he forgot I forgot to I, buy them.
2: Uh, right, so I feel like it's a volume thing and it's an it's an unmoderated social forum. Um uh so, I, but I, I do go back and forth on the question because I'm, am you know, I, I try to be a little more polite than than the, than the average person on Twitter. But so I'm, I'm a little conflicted about the whole thing. What well, do you think?
0: Well, Ryan. So last thing here because I actually think that it, online media, YouTube, Facebook, independent media, websites, etc., is the one side, and and TV, New York Times, Washington Post, etc., is the other side, and the battlefield where they meet is Twitter. Mm, Yeah. If it wasn't for Twitter, the TV knuckleheads would sit in their ivory tower and never even hear the people. That's what it used to be in the past. They accidentally went on Twitter, a place where other humans are allowed to exist that aren't millionaires. And so I think it's their first encounter with actual Americans, and they're flabbergasted by it. They're like, what? You don't all agree that that the richest people in the (laughs) world should get all the breaks? This is so weird and rude.
2: Yeah, I think that's well said. Because like, they they ignore YouTube, um, and in fact, um, I, I've I've noticed, for instance, that when I break news um, here on on the Young Turks, uh, it doesn't kind of jump into Twitter and from Twitter into the 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 mainstream media because uh, this there's only people here. You know it's you know, there's, a, <laughs> like, that's there's like,
0: only people here. That's such a great line. <laughs>
2: um, in fact, uh, when I interviewed Nabila Islam, who's um, the so-called AOC of Atlanta, she's running for Congress um, in the in a suburban district outside of Atlanta right now, I, I she told me that uh, she had just been endorsed uh, by Rokana. And I said, well, let's let's uh, let's break that news in this in this video on Young Turks, and, and she was like, well, I'm you know she was she was going to coordinate it with Rokana's campaign, and you know they they have a whole rollout, and I was like, look, it's fine. A hundred thousand people will watch the video, but it won't actually jump from YouTube onto Twitter, and we can still then break it later um, in an intercept article, and we can link to the the Young Turks video when we do that. And she said, okay, let's let's do that. And I did it. And then it wasn't until like a week later that we wrote the article over at The Intercept that said Rokana is endorsing Nabila Islam in Atlanta. And then it moved around on Twitter um, and moved around kind of in the like political ecosystem. So you're right that there's, there's, there's this fascinating ecosystem that uh, exists in public with millions of people watching it, yet somehow- uh, is completely off the radar of the p- folks at MSNBC and the New York Times. But you're right, they they do meet on, on Twitter.
0: Yeah, a lot more to talk about there, but we're out of time here. But we thank you, Ryan, for changing our tagline. The Young Turks, there are only people here.
2: Just just people, <laughs> just people here.
0: All right, Ryan Grimm, uh, contributor to TYT, also Washington Bureau Chief of the Intercept. Thanks for
2: joining us, brother. Oh Wait, Cenk, Praveen told me to tell you that my book is back in your shop, the TYT shop. Uh, By the way, Ryan. It was sold out for a while, but it's back in now. I
0: can't tell you the context in which I quote it, but there is no book I quote more than your book, okay? (laughs) It's called We've Got People, it's on shoptyt.com, it's about the progressive movement. You should definitely read it, it's a great, great read. Uh, Thank you, Ryan,
2: appreciate it. Thanks, Cenk.
0: Okay, all right. when we come back, we got the post game for you guys, I think, I believe Brett and I are gonna do it. Does Pete Buttigieg actually speak Norwegian? We have evidence, it's awesome. Uh, so if you wanna be a member to watch that last uh, portion of the Young Turks, tyt.com slash join. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you hit the join button underneath the video, the 499 layer gets you that live or anytime you want it. We'll be right back.